Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And you're not going to be hearing from Jordan Rubin today or for a few weeks at least. Jordan welcomed a new uh, podcast host into his family this week. Uh, baby Ruben is healthy by all accounts, but he's going to be staying home to spend some time uh, with the new addition. And I think I think we can accurately guess that he's training him to be a podcast host as we speak. So until then, you'll have just me and our guests that we have from week to week. This week, we have uh, Gabe Roth, who's joining us from the watchdog group Fix the Court to chat about the Supreme Court leak and not so much about the the case itself and what it means for abortion rights going forward, but what the leak means for the institution and the public's confidence in the work that, ju- that the justices do. So let's get to it. So with us today is Gabe Roth, the director of Fix the Court, a watchdog group that keeps its eye on what it calls the most powerful, least accountable branch of government, the Supreme Court. So thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me, Kimberly. Gabe, refresh my memory. How long have you been doing this? It seems like forever ago that I walked off the metro to go to the Supreme Court and I saw like all the justices' faces and saw the this new watchdog group that you had set up. How long have you guys been at this? Yeah, it's, it's uh, about seven and a half years ago. We were, I think, one of the last groups to be able to, to do this, to do. We did a, a two-station metro takeover in the D.C. WMATA public transit system where we covered two stations with the faces of the justice actually the week before it said who is most powerful least accountable and it had these red banners everywhere who is most powerfully and then the next week the following week we showed the justices faces and said you know they're the most powerful least accountable began and then we listed all the reasons that they are so powerful and Mm -hmm. accountable from the lack of term limits to the lack of an ethics code to the lack of uh, defined and followed through recusal rules to gifts and travel and personal hospitality and all that all those things that we've been working to improve over the last seven and a half years. Right. So uh, I think it's interesting that you mentioned kind of, um, you know, the justices being put in the spotlight. I think back seven and a half years ago, that seemed, um, you know, pretty unique. Uh, nowadays, I think um, that's that seems to be changing a bit. And that's actually why we wanted to have you on uh, in the wake of this historic leak of a draft opinion in the Dobbs uh, case that uh, could overturn Roe versus Wade. Um, it deals with a Mississippi law. Uh, that bans abortion after 15 weeks. I guess we've talked about it a little bit on this podcast, but it seemed pretty earth-shaking just to be having that leak, right? And so I'm just wondering how, you know, with your work looking at the court and transparency, how did you kind of consume that news? What stood out to you? I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, what stood out to me was the the content of the opinion, uh, mm, just how gotcha. far beyond what I was really expecting. I had assumed that Chief Justice Roberts would have been able to, I was expecting Roe v. Wade to be overturned, but I wasn't expecting it in such a stark way. And I was expecting mm-hmm. Chief Justice Roberts and even possibly Justice Kavanaugh to be able to sort of tamp down the rhetoric um, and maybe tamp up the historical accuracy because uh, the rhetoric was very high and the historical accuracy was very low, uh, at least in my assessment of that opinion and, and, and what it would do for women's reproductive health care uh, in the country. And, and the leak, honestly, like it's a it's a it's 
sort of taken on a life of its own, right? I mean, right. Mm-hmm. The, the right has won, right? The right is ascendant. The right has won. Conservatives have won. Yet all this last week, we've heard conservatives playing the victim. And you can't be mm-hmm. the victim of this leak. And you can't be the victim and win at the same time. I, that's just not how the rules of the game are played. So, you know, whether it was in a House appropriations hearing hearing or a House Judiciary hearing, it's, it's you're constantly hearing from the Republicans, like the leak is the worst thing and protesting at justices' houses are the, is the worst thing that's ever happened to this country. Totally oblivious as to what the opinion would actually do and completely seemingly going straight from January 5th to January 7th in their personal 2021 calendars. That's a good point. I take I take the point that the major news here is really the draft opinion. Um, and, you know, it is a draft opinion. I think maybe, you know, you said you were surprised that the Chief Justice and Kavanaugh weren't able to kind of tamp down some of the rhetoric. It'll be interesting to see if they are actually um, trying to do that, if that's in the works and, you know, what the ultimate opinion says. But you're right. Um, the outcome of the opinion is certainly kind of the most significant thing. I guess for me as a court watcher, one reason why I'm interested in the leak is not because of how it happened or or who did it or any of those kind of questions. But it's, for me, it's a question of what it signals about the institution and the public's perception of it. And so to back up, I think, you know, we all kind of assume that on the justices' minds are is this issue that, you know, the Supreme Court, it doesn't have any way to enforce its will, right? It doesn't have, you know, sword or purse, which is the famous phrase, uh, but it really just kind of lives off the goodwill of the people and what the people think of it. And I'm wondering if this leak kind of signals that that's shifting, that maybe public confidence in the court isn't what it used to be. And, you know, what are the real implications of that? Well, I mean, I I, I hope that public confidence in the court is, is I mean, the, the court hasn't done anything to maintain that confidence. It's been years since the court since since Congress in the right, it's been my entire adult lifetime, if not longer, where Congress has basically done nothing, and in the Congress and the presidency have all seems seemingly or even if when it's aligned in the same party, constantly bickering and not able to really get anything done. So nature abhors a vacuum. So does Washington D.C. and the Supreme Court has been, you know, more than happy to step into the void and take that outsized power, take that role as the most powerful branch of government. And I think with that power comes some sort of uh, not just responsibility, but a need for accountability. Um, And I think people are waking up to that. Like, it's not just that the justices, you know, I mean, obviously their opinions are so, so impactful. But I think over the last few weeks, I've been hearing from folks who know what I do for a living. And they're just like, oh, wait, the Supreme Court has no ethics code. The recusal <laughs> rules are really are merely advisory. I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been talking about for for. I mean, <laughs> even before Fix the Court started, I was doing stuff with the Coalition for Court Transparency for for the better part of a decade now, and I think more and more people are waking up to that fact and the fact that based on their decisions, based on the cases that they're choosing to take, based on you know stepping in when there isn't uh, necessarily a uh, a circuit split or taking cases on the shadow docket. They're acting like politicians. They've always, I mean, look, they've always acted like politicians. We can go back to the first set of Supreme Court justices and how they, you know, and, and the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and the Democratic Republicans and what Washington did and what Adams and Jefferson, like what Jackson did, what Buchanan did. I mean, we can go back, uh, you know, 
the Lincoln expanded the court. Like the, 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 the judiciary has always been political, but for some reason, the people who are, you know, I guess our parents' age, Kimberly, have decided that the judiciary wasn't political. I, I don't know how that's possible, but I think that's sort of the consensus. But like SCOTUS has always been political. And, mm-hmm. and now that SCOTUS has all this power, I think we just need to realize that SCOTUS is like any other DC institution in its, uh, in, in its partisanship and in its need for, for greater oversight. I think one thing that is really interesting, it seems to be like, uh, as you mentioned, there does seem to be more of a public awareness um, that, you know, at least the justices are acting as politicians. But on the court itself, when you hear the justices talk, they are adamant that they are not doing politics, they are doing law. And so we saw sort of this, you know, PR campaign from the justices, three of the justices last fall, um, where, you know, Breyer on one end of the ideological spectrum over to Thomas, who's on the exact opposite, you know, going out in public and giving speeches about how, you know, the media makes it seem like they're politicians. Um, I guess I'm wondering... Do you agree? Obviously, you don't agree with them, with them that they're not politicians. But what is it that the justices could do? Um, what is it that your organization is advocating that they do in order to kind of counter this narrative, since it doesn't seem to be very effective what they've done so far? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, that, that's a tough question, because I don't think that they're necessarily capable, like, they've, they've shown an unwillingness to do the things that we and others have asked them to do, right? We've asked them for cameras in the Supreme Court so we can see them doing their public work. And and frankly, I think uh, the, the view of SCOTUS would only be increased by that fr- from the public because oral argument is a collaboration. It's a serious exercise. It's not, I mean, I just testified before Congress. That was not a serious exercise. I, I was just like a potted plant for four hours. You know, like that wasn't a serious exercise. Well, a serious <laughs> exercise is oral argument when you've got Nine, now that all nine justices participate, especially now that Clarence Thomas is is, uh, is part of the questioning, it's a serious and 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 we, the fact that we can't even see it. Look, like live streaming, live audio has been great, but there's no guarantee it's going to continue once all the pandemic level restrictions are are lifted. I mean, I've been told that the an announcement might be coming on that soon, but I think that that announcement is uh, maybe been postponed. I haven't heard any updates on it because of all. Because <laughs> yeah, of I wonder the leak. how this leak uh, factors into that. You know, I think that at this point, you know, I, I would want the justices to have an ethics code and abide by it. I'd want them to be more cognizant of their of their conflicts of interest and 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 sell their stock and tell us why they're recusing and be more willing to accept recusal motions. I want to know who's funding their their travel out of D.C. I want to know who's paying gifts. I want them to report all these things contemporaneously. And online. Just a few, just a few things, right? Yeah, just it's have not. A- <laughs> it's but it's all things that either members. I mean, look, you know. So I think someone said to me the other day, "Oh, well, you know, you're, you're treating. You want to treat the justices like members of Congress." Y- yeah. I do in a lot of ways. I mean, they're making political decisions. And even if they're not making political decisions, they're public servants and public servants deserve scrutiny, scrutiny, especially when they have life tenure, right? Like there, there aren't 67 senators who would remove after an impeachment any of these guys. So, mm-hmm. you know, if they're going to have life tenure, if they're going to be able to serve until they're 90, as as many of them are wont to do, um, you know, the very least is we should know a little bit more about, you know, what goes into their decision making, what 
potential entanglements they have. And, and just to put a finer point on it, like they know all these things. The justices know all these things. They know that, you know, what, what Fix the Court is advocating for, maybe it's new in the sense that it's like, you know, coalescing all these things. And, you know, we try mm-hmm. not to go after a single justice, right? Like the Alliance for Justice will go after like Scalia or did go after Scalia and Thomas and like, I don't know, the Judicial Crisis Network will go after Ginsburg and, and Sotomayor, but like we're trying to just be neutral here as much as we can be. So maybe that's new, but all these fixes are things that the justices have known about for years, so it really falls in Congress's lap uh, to, to, to stem the tide and, and raise the level of accountability in the third branch. That's actually a question that I had uh, for you is kind of where Congress fits into this piece of the puzzle, because it seems a little uh, like in all these issues, we're kind of not talking about the elephant in the room, which is like these are different branches of government. And the Supreme Court really seems to think that Congress can't tell it what to do. You know, it might be a good idea to have an ethics code, but you can't make us as a, as a separate branch of government um take one on. That's for us to decide. And it seems like Congress, at, at least so far, has been kind of playing along. I, I, I often say it kind of treats the justices with like little kid gloves, because it's almost as if they're afraid um, to get into that. Understandably, right? Um, Congress doesn't want the Supreme Court telling it what to do. Um, but just wondering if you could explain that dynamic. I know you, you do work with um, Congress pretty closely. Like, has that been something that's been pretty frustrating for your work? So I, I think that Congress has some levers it can pull and some power it has over the judiciary that it's using and some that it's not. Uh, Congress is, you know, the House Judiciary Committee uh, earlier this week passed a, a, or advanced a bill, uh, moved it to the House floor that would require the justices to file, uh, create, write and adopt a code of conduct and it would expand the different categories of recusal rules and it would require the justices to establish minimum gift, minimum travel gift and, and outside income uh, standards that mirror Congress's, right? So but, but what's the punishment? I think that's, that's sort of like the question mm-hmm. is like, like what, what if they don't, if they don't follow through, if these, if this bill becomes law, which it won't, we can get to that later. But if this bill becomes law, um, what are the, you know, what would happen if the judiciary is is in non-compliance? And, and that's a really open question. I mean, I think it would, mm. quote unquote, look bad for the judiciary to not follow through with a basic thing that passed Congress, like a judicial ethics code, if it were to. Um, but, you know, there's, there's really no recourse or reprimand, save the high bar of impeachment. That being said, I really think that we're missing an opportunity here to not have more oversight and scrutiny of the judiciary's budget. And just to give a quick example, this year, Mm -hmm. the judiciary, specifically the Supreme Court, asked for a 25% increase of its discretionary budget. In the Constitution, the justices are required to receive a salary that is not diminished during their time in office. So the quarter of a million dollars or whatever it is that the nine justices make, uh, Chief Justice makes a little little more, um, plus benefits, that's all told about $3 million. But the justices want another $137 million this year, which is 25% more than they wanted last year. And no one in the House Appropriations Committee or the Senate Appropriations Committee, to my knowledge, is blinking an eye. I mean, it's possible at the end, like a big chunk of that is like certain renovations for the for the interior uh a courtyard of the court. And I don't know, maybe that'll get pushed a year or two. But just overall, they're like, sure, here's and the entire judiciary budget is, I think, eight point seven billion dollars. Um, and they're not and they're not pushing back. They're not batting an eye. And I think that's just a really 
huge missed opportunity. There's no question that Congress has the power of the purse here and they're not using it to exact uh, concessions from the judiciary. And I think that's really going to be one of our next frontiers is to say, okay, you want your $8.6 billion third branch, you want your $140 million Supreme Court. But along with that here, there are going to be some reasonable strings like an ethics code, like an anti-harassment law, like free pacer. And uh, if you don't do that, then then we're, we're going to you know not give you what you ask for. Yeah, I think it's uh, one thing that's been really interesting to me, and I'm not sure why we haven't made more hay of it, um, is that, like you're right, not only is Congress not pushing back on these budget requests and asking them to do kind of things that we would already have expected them to do, uh, but like they're not even asking them to come and testify publicly at a hearing, um, <clears throat> which is something we had historically seen, but fell off even before the pandemic, really. Um, yeah, they've only testified we, once in public in the last seven years. So they skipped 2016, 17, 18, 20, 21, and 22. It's just been 2019 in the last seven years. And that's, you know, Alito and, and Kagan were there. And that's, right. when Kagan, that's when Kagan said that the chief justice was considering a Supreme Court ethics code. I was sitting right behind her. But yeah, they haven't they haven't appeared since. Um, I, have a, I have a theory as to what part of the reason why that's not. And I don't, I don't have a good mm-hmm. sourcing on it, but I'll mention I'll mention it exclusively to B- Bloomberg Law. My theory <laughs> is that um, I because I heard that Brett Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, is now on the Supreme Court budget budget committee. Oh, okay. Because he was on the cafeteria committee, but now I think he's on the budget committee, and I think that part of the reason potentially he's do he's been put there is because like he's never testifying before Congress for the rest of his life. So if he's the guy in charge of the budget, then they can just, they, they obviously will always meet in private because dude's done with testifying before Congress, clearly. That is a inside baseball theory as to why I think the justices are no longer testifying um, in, because Judge Moskoff of the Judicial Conference and Judge St. Eve of the Judicial Conference testified in public yesterday, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. yesterday being May 12th. Um, so, you know, judges are capable of testifying in public in this peri-pandemic world, but, uh, you know, it's a shame that SCOTUS isn't. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned the 2019 testimony with Alito and Kagan. I still, to this day, um, pull on some nuggets that they said. You mentioned the ethics code, um, but there were a lot of other things that they talked about, workplace harassment um, in the judiciary at what, you know, at large. That was was the hearing at which Fix the Court batted its highest in terms of getting members of Congress to ask the questions we requested that they they ask. So um, we're very proud of that. Didn't do so well yesterday, May 12th, but, uh, but back in 2019, yeah, they asked about ethics, recusal, financial disclosure. I mean, they're never asked about these things, but but uh, we had a we had a good week back then and, and, and they were asked and, you know, uh, we yeah, I, I, I too use it to this day. Uh, well, thank you so much for chatting with us about this. Of course. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. for This is great. All right. Some interesting stuff there from Gabe, our guest. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to turn to other matters besides the leaked abortion draft, but no promises. Uh, the Supreme Court is set to issue some opinions on Monday, so we'll see uh, what we get from them. A lot of big questions still outstanding, including the Second Amendment case. Uh, you can check out our deep dive episode on that. Until then, you can follow all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? 
These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.